Charles Dickens' first love wasn't writing, it was acting. And he seems to have been born with the desire to perform. As a child, he entertained the crowds in the pubs of Portsmouth, where he grew up, and put on plays with his toys. As a young man, he enthralled his co-workers with impersonations, and as a father, put on conjuring shows at his children's parties. Throughout his life, he remained fanatical about showmanship and the stage. Dr Paul Schlicker is a past president of the International Dickens Fellowship and author of Dickens and Popular Entertainment. When Dickens was a young man, he went to the theatre frequently, uh, nearly every night for three years, and the person that he went to see most often was a man named Charles Matthews, who was a comedian known f primarily for his one-man shows, which involved appearing as a variety of characters in quick succession. These were known as monopolylogues, and Dickens just loved them. These solo pieces, in which Matthews played many different characters, were a huge influence on the young Dickens. Actor and author of Dickens and the Great Theatre of the World, Simon Callow. It was that thing about different people speaking to each other that excited Dickens beyond anything. And he learned these monopolylogues and performed them himself at home and, and, and would perform them for anybody who wanted to hear them. And it's clear that his novels are uh, constructed in the same fashion. It's as if Dickens himself was there doing all these voices for you and you can hear it in the novels themselves. While working as a young clerk in a solicitor's office in Lincoln's Inn, Dickens not only went to the theatre all the time, but also appeared in what were called minor theatres. He appeared to be hooked. I describe this as a kind of theatrical karaoke. You could go in and you could pay them to let you play Hamlet, you know. If you knew the part, there would be other actors who knew the other parts in Hamlet, and you could just go on and do it. And he did a bit of that. But then he actually applied to Covent Garden Theatre for an audition, and he was going to sing a song. His sister Fanny, who was a musician, was going to play the piano for him. And he got a terrible cold. And so he cried off the audition. They said, well, that's fine, but come at the beginning of next season and we'll give you the audition. But in the interim, he was offered a job as a reporter on his uncle's parliamentary paper called The Mirror of Parliament. And then he was away. He was off into writing, you know, and he sort of forgot about being an actor for a while. Great Expectations, Mr. Wopsle's performance. It was the fourth year of my apprenticeship to Joe, and it was a Saturday night. There was a group assembled round the fire at the Three Jolly Bargemen, attentive to Mr. Wopsle, as he read the newspaper aloud. Of that group, I was one. A highly popular murder had been committed, and Mr. Wopsle was imbrued in blood to the eyebrows. He gloated over every abhorrent adjective in the description and identified himself with every witness at the inquest. He faintly moaned, I am done for, as the victim, and he barbarously bellowed, I'll serve you out, as the murderer. The coroner, in Mr. Wopsle's hands, became... Timon of Athens, the beadle Coriolanus. He enjoyed himself thoroughly, and we all enjoyed ourselves and were delightfully comfortable. In this cosy state of mind, we came to the verdict. Willful murder. The fashion for public readings and lectures in Victorian England appealed to Dickens not only as a showman looking for a place in the limelight, but as a way of personally reaching people, moving, uplifting and uniting them. Dr Paul Schlicker 
Dickens firmly believed from uh, the outset of his career that entertainment and amusement and leisure activity were essential parts of being human, and his values were largely based on love of people one for another. He's concerned above all with gregariousness, sociability, rather than with introspection and inward-looking development. Dickens saw his age as uncongenial to popular entertainment. Opportunities for leisure were fewer as working hours grew longer. The prevailing economic philosophy held that idleness was unproductive and leisure unnecessary, while the evangelical movement thought the theatre and acting were immoral. It was a cultural crisis Dickens wanted to remedy. When he writes about circuses and theatres, as often as not, what he's really interested in is not the performance, but the spectators and the way that they are given leisure and escape from their everyday activities. They're given stimulus to their imaginations and an opportunity for sharing their pleasures with those around them. You can imagine the young Dickens at the theatre, one eye always on the crowd and its characters, lit up by the barely dimmed gaslights. He was not just storing character sketches to use as material. These were the ordinary working people he wanted to reach. And through entertainment was how he wanted to do it. Families, often very young families, would go with their children and with a picnic hamper to the theatre and would spend an entire evening there, sometimes two, three times a week. The doors would open about six o'clock in the evening and, and often it was past midnight when they closed. There was a great deal of emphasis on song, of melodrama and on spectacle, so it was hugely entertaining. Dickens wrote many short stories for the magazines he edited, Household Words and All the Year Round, and a couple he adapted as readings. Dr Marigold, a monologue following the lonely fortunes of a travelling salesman, was one of his best loved. Me and my dog were all the company left in the cart now, and the dog learned to give a short bark when they wouldn't bid, and to give another and a nod of his head when I asked him, Who said half a crown? Are you the gentleman, sir, that offered half a crown? He attained to an immense height of popularity, and I shall always believe taught himself entirely out of his own head to growl at any person in the crowd that bid as low as sixpence. But he got to be well on in years. And one night, when I was convulsing York with the spectacles, he took a convulsion of his own account upon the very footboard by me, and it finished him. Being naturally of a tender turn, I had dreadful lonely feelings on me after this. I conquered them at selling times, having a reputation to keep, not to mention keeping myself, but they got me down in private and rolled upon me. That's often the way with us public characters. See us on the footboard and you'll give pretty well anything you possess to be us. See us off the footboard and you'd add a trifle to be off your bargain. It was under those circumstances that I come acquainted with a giant. He spent a lot of his time and energy going to the theatre. Dennis Walder, Emeritus Professor of English Literature at the Open University. He also put on private theatricals. He liked to perform in plays that he and others had put together. There was an intermingling, if you like, of the theatre interest and the fiction 
He also enjoyed making fun of characters in the theatre. I mean, Nicholas Nickleby has the Crummles um, theatre people. A lot of the other novels pick up aspects of the theatre and of performance and make fun of them or show great enjoyment in them. So clearly Dickens and the theatre, Dickens and the stage are part of the same thing, the same phenomenon. Throughout his life, Dickens put on amateur theatricals, especially at Christmas. He was, most agreed, an actor with flair. Simon Callow. Charles Dickens as an actor, first of all, was incredibly engaging, incredibly personable, very quick, very quick in his thinking and very good at mercurial changes. But also later in his career as an amateur actor, he took on a couple of roles written for him by Wilkie Collins. This was at a very dark period in his life when he was deeply unhappy in which he played a man who had murdered somebody or been involved in a murder, and the other a man who uh, wanted to murder somebody but out of sort of nobility decided not to. And um, here Dickens took everybody by surprise. He presented such a vivid sense of inner anguish. The horror of these men's inner lives was so vividly conveyed. And then... Both had death scenes, which he performed, apparently, with the most terrifying realism, that people literally were stunned and wept and bit their handkerchiefs and, and strong men trampled and all the rest of it. One of those productions was of The Frozen Deep. Dickens had spent six months growing a beard for the part and learned his lines in a single 20-mile walk. As well as taking the leading role, Dickens stage-managed the production as committed to this as he was to his starring role. Dr Paul Schlicker. The initial production of The Frozen Deep was done in Tavistock House, where Dickens lived at the time, and what he did was to have carpenters come in and transform the children's nursery into a theatre. He had the back wall removed so that uh, he could simulate snowfall behind and uh, fundamentally (laughs) wrecked his house in order to turn it into a theatre. Simon Callow again. The theatre was many, many things that suited Dickens very well. He was a person of extraordinary practical effectiveness, and he loved the art and the craft of putting on a play. He loved talking to the carpenters, talking to the designers, looking at the costumes. His productions were very innovative. They were rather ahead of what was going on on the current uh, British stage in the 1850s and 60s when he was doing all this. But the other thing that he loved beyond anything was the camaraderie and the the sense of all these people pulling together in one direction. He loved uh, the preparation of the show. He loved doing the show. He loved the aftermath of the show. He loved providing wonderful meals for his companies, brewed punch, especially for them, a very special kind of punch which was absolutely lethal. And so everybody had the most glorious memories of all this time, and then he hated it when it was all over. And right at the end of his life, he said that that's what my great ambition really was, to run a great national theatre and write all the plays, tell everybody what to do, bend them to my will, and put on these extraordinary plays. That's what I really wanted to do with my life. Nicholas Nickleby, a play retold. At last it came out that the patriarch was the man who had treated the bones of the outlaw's father-in-law with so much disrespect, for which cause and reason, the outlaw's wife repaired to his castle to kill him, and so got into a dark room 
where, after a good deal of groping in the dark, everybody got hold of everybody else and took them for somebody besides, which occasioned a vast quantity of confusion, with some pistoling, loss of life and torchlight. After which the patriarch came forward, and observing with a knowing look that he knew all about his children now, and would tell them when they got inside, said that there could not be a more appropriate occasion for marrying the young people than that, and therefore he joined their hands with the full consent of the indefatigable page, who, being the only other person surviving, pointed with his cap into the clouds and his right hand to the ground, thereby invoking a blessing and giving the cue for the curtain to come down, which it did amidst general applause. Dickens' production of The Frozen Deep precipitated a dramatic change in his life. The following year, 1858, heralded a new chapter for Dickens and the beginning of his professional career as a reader of his own works. The Open University. For more information, go to www.open.edu forward slash iTunes U.